Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is episode 25. Insurance companies are practicing medicine. And they are doing it in a way that if a doctor did that, they would absolutely lose their license. My guest, William Bennett, MD, is a pediatric gastroenterologist. He is an associate professor of pediatrics and an adjunct professor of urology at Indiana University. In addition, Dr. Bennett has an MS in both computer science and health informatics and has written and co-written several papers. Dr. Billy Bennett, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Thank you very much for having me, Joe. So I would like to start. You recently had an editorial published in the Washington Post, and it was insurance companies aren't doctors, so why do we keep letting them practice medicine? And I'd like to know, how do we let insurance companies practice medicine? Well, this is a good question, and I think this is the central thesis of what the op-ed was about, which is the idea that when when insurance companies are allowed to deny a service that a patient's physician has recommended, uh, then they are making a medical decision. And given the fact that insurance companies have never met the patient, they haven't examined the patient, in most cases they have done only a very cursory review of medical information, and then they still are allowed to make a decision. And then the the worst part, of course, is that these decisions have important impacts on people's lives. And we have decided as a society that, that in order to make those kind of decisions, you need, you know, a decade or more of training, and you need to have a relationship with the patient for whom you're helping make that decision. And so for us to pass this along to insurance companies, uh, simply because they uh, they're they're attempting to control costs, um, I believe is is uh, is basically practicing medicine. Do you know who are making those decisions or how they are making those decisions? So in most cases, insurance companies have some guidelines that are set out, and then they have reviewers typically who are not trained medical professionals who then. Uh, Look at some basic facts that they have, uh, you know, related to the patient, like which diagnoses do they have, how old are they, and so forth. And then they, you know, they, they follow these guidelines and then uh, issue a denial. This denial then gets communicated to the patient uh, and the doctor, um, usually in writing. And then only if the patient and or the physician uh, files an appeal you know, only then does it actually reach an actual medical professional. So you said it only then does it reach a medical professional. What happens then? So uh, usually then there is what's called a peer-to-peer. And the idea is that you have a doctor that works for the insurance company who speaks to the doctor taking care of the patient, and then they discuss the case. 
And then the insurance company doctor is able to say, okay, this is standard of care. That sounds like a great idea, you know, in practice, if it actually were implemented the way that they describe it, then it might actually work. But unfortunately, and I think I can best illustrate this with an example. So I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist, and there are not very many of us in the country. Uh, There's about 25 or so in uh, the state of Indiana, for instance. And if, if a decision has to be made about what to do for a complex GI problem in children, then really only a pediatric gastroenterologist would be qualified to make that decision. But unfortunately, the insurance company doesn't get that specific about it. It's simply just a doctor of some kind. Uh, I've talked to obstetricians. I've talked to retired psychiatrists. I've talked to internists. I've talked to family practice doctors none of whom are even remotely qualified to render an opinion about uh, a medical decision, you know, related to one of my patients. So, yes, there are doctors that are involved in these peer-to-peer discussions, but they are not even remotely qualified to say whether or not it's a reasonable medical decision. Let's go back a moment. So, but these same doctors are making the decisions about what is the standard of care So um, it's actually not usually those individual doctors. They are usually responding to a policy that the insurance company has set down, which is basically to say that, you know, based on these clinical guidelines or based on whether or not there is, you know, a randomized control trial for this particular treatment, we will or we won't uh, cover this. And, uh, And unfortunately, that doesn't take into account the individual circumstances, uh, you know, for that patient. And actually, in, in medicine in general and in pediatrics specifically, uh, most medical decisions are not made based on uh, existing clinical guidelines or existing evidence. Uh, in most cases, we have to make our best professional opinion, often in a complex situation. Um, and so most of the time, the, the thing I run into is... Uh, I have a patient that has Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, which are these really severe autoimmune diseases that affect the the digestive tract. And then we have to decide what kind of medicine we can use. And most of these medicines are are extremely expensive. Unfortunately, most of them are not FDA approved for use in children. And so then insurance companies just say that. They say, we're not going to pay for it because this is not FDA approved. But there are no other good options. Other than taking out huge segments of the child's GI tract, there isn't a good way to, to manage these problems. And so whenever we, we prescribe these off-label, it's an easy thing for them to say, oh, I'm just trying to protect patients, or I'm just trying to only do what's been, you know, pay for what has been proven to be effective. Um, but if we don't have other options, then while we wait for the insurance company to pay for something, Meanwhile, this child is in, the, is in and out of the hospital, is missing school, is suffering, is losing weight, is malnourished, and they're not, they're not aware of these things. That isn't something that they take into consideration. And if they're not taking into consideration important medical facts about a patient, you know, and still making a decision, then they're, they're I mean, essentially, um, you know, attempting to practice medicine. And, you know, I would say that any practitioner that doesn't take into account those important details, then that's malpractice. 
And so I would go one step further and say, not only are insurance companies practicing medicine, but they're doing so in a way that if a doctor did that, they would absolutely lose their license. Okay. So what you're saying is when you're recommending these medicines, I mean, what I would assume would happen if a patient comes in with something, you would try what's considered the best practice. And if that doesn't work, you're going to move on to other things. Exactly right. In my most recent podcast episode before this, I had a doctor on, Dr. Victoria Dooley, and she described a case where a patient has asthma, and the insurance company just decided they weren't going to pay for the inhaler that was working. She didn't change jobs, and the company didn't change insurance companies. And this just seems completely arbitrary. Have you experienced anything where you think the insurance company is making a completely arbitrary decision? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I would say the the denials that we get fall into two categories. They're either denying something where we're trying to escalate care or try a new medicine when nothing is working that we've tried so far. And that's probably three quarters of cases. And then the remainder tend to be things where somebody's been on a medicine often for years, which have been effective at controlling their disease, keeping them out of the hospital, letting them live a normal life. And then the insurance company makes an internal decision that that's too costly. Or, and the other kind of more frightening thing that occurs is insurance companies negotiate with pharmaceutical companies to have a formulary in place where they, they have to use the version of the drug or the, the specific drug in that class in lieu of, of, of other things, even if they've been on something for years that's been working. So I would say it's not even arbitrary. It's probably worse than that. It's financially motivated or it's based on internal negotiations but between an insurance company and a pharmaceutical company. And again, neither of those entities know the patient or even remotely qualified to make these kind of decisions. And so then the, the decision is, is profit motivated or at the very least cost saving motivated because these are often expensive patients and they're looking for ways to make broad sweeping changes across all of their patients uh, that will save them money. Uh, and if they can get a 5% discount, uh, you know, in, a, in how much they'll pay for a drug, uh, then they're going to be highly motivated to change that, whether somebody uh, has been on something that's worked or not. So basically what you are saying is you think that many of the decisions are just strictly based on cost without any regard for the patient. Yes, I would say that the vast majority of decisions, not just most of them, but not just a big portion of them, the vast majority of the time, that is the motivation that insurance companies have is, is relative to cost, not patient outcome. If they were concerned about patient outcomes, then they would be, then they would be much more focused on carefully reviewing clinical data and making patient, and making decisions that are based on, on what the patient needs. So it sounds like we basically have a corporate-run health insurance system without regard for the patient. We absolutely have that. And unfortunately, that you know, a lot of that practice does also uh, you know, appear in, in public forms. So there's commercial insurance, 
which is, you know, these tend to be national companies. You have, you know, Medicaid, which is run at the level of the state, and that is often farmed out to private companies. So not only do we see it when an insurance company denies it from private insurance, but we also see the exact same thing happen whenever they're running Medicaid. And then add in the fact that the people that are in charge of, of insurance companies are the same people, the same executives, the same physician reviewers often work for Medicaid. There's a lot of interchange and in employment in the industry. And so then you have the same sort of phenomenon occurring where, again, they're trying to save money. And so that ethic of saving money is the number one thing, that's going to continue as long as we make that the value. And, and we have a bunch of individual entities where they're not really, um, they're not beholden to the public in any way, then we're going to continue to have the same phenomenon. So the, the only way to fix it is to have something where there is a very clear patient focus, where clinical outcomes are what matter, not cost savings. And what would you think is the solution to this problem? How would you solve it? So, you know, I, I think two things. First, uh, I think we need a single-payer system so that we have one entity that we're dealing with. You add a ton of complexity to it when you have hundreds of different entities all of whom are making separate decisions. And the second is that we have to have it centralized. If we really want to save costs, then we need one entity that is paying for everything similar to how uh, Canada has a nationalized health insurance. And if we do that, then the, then the system is beholden to taxpayers, is beholden to the public. And it's much easier to have regulations that are agreed upon by us you know, across the country are agreed upon as this is how we, we make sure that appropriate care is being delivered. If we have a profit motive at all involved in this, then this is going to just keep happening. I absolutely get it that these are, these are companies that have employees and have stockholders and, you know, people feed their families, you know, because they work for these companies, but we just can't do this anymore. We can't have Profit motives be so heavily involved with healthcare, or at least have profit motive on the payer side. Because as long as that exists, as long as cost is the number one thing, and that's going to be a problem if we, if we continue with either the current system of commercial insurance or the current system of individual state Medicaid programs that are often administered by commercial insurance. Until we get rid of that structure, this is how these entities are going to behave. We have to change what their motive is. Their motive has to be a, a duty to the public to accomplish good patient-centered care that's cost-effective, not a duty to the public to provide insurance and then spend as little money as possible and make as much money as possible. Well, one of the things, you know, in Medicare, I've heard that Medicare Advantage plans are now having the same problem as other insurance, where it just becomes a cost issue. But traditional Medicare, I've heard doctors can make the decisions that they need to. Have you heard anything like that or know about that? I personally have less experience with Medicare since I work in pediatrics, and that's, a, that's an adult-only program. Right. But 
our research group does a lot of health services research and health policy research. And we found that you still have a similar problem. And I think a lot of things have to change in order for us to make that balance between saving costs and allowing doctors to make decisions. But the problem is much less of an ordeal um, on the Medicare side than on the Medicaid or commercial insurance side. So, I, you know, short answer to your question, yes, I would say it's less of a problem. But I think there are still regulatory changes that need to be made in order for us to prevent this from coming up down the road. The opposition to Medicare for all, when you were describing the single-payer system, obviously that's Medicare for all. But the opposition says, oh, we'll have government-run insurance. But we wouldn't have government-run insurance. We would have publicly financed insurance. But based on what you were saying, we have corporate-run insurance, and it seems to me that, from what I've heard, that the government-run insurance would be better. I would agree with that. You know, I think that the opposition to Medicare for All is predicated on a fallacy, which is that corporations are going to be more humanistic or be more patient-centered than the government is going to be. And I think that that is, you know, if you look at other countries, I think it's very clear that that is not the case. And, And in my experience, corporate entities are going to focus on their bottom line, not on patients. They're responsibility is to their shareholders. And ultimately, when they make decisions, that's who they are beholden to. And until you change who they're responsible to, until you change that to the people, the same people that are receiving the care and who are paying for it with tax dollars, until you make the people receiving care be the ones that the company is responsible to, you're just going to keep having this problem. And that fallacy goes across most liberal democratic policy ideas, not just Medicare for all. This idea that if the government is involved, that somehow it's this sort of evil, distant entity that will oppress people and that corporations are your friend. I mean, I think that's just clearly false. That, you know, the government represents us. The government is, is, you know, all of us getting together to pool our resources to take care of each other. And if we're the ones doing that, and we're the ones that they're answering to, there's a much higher chance that patient-centered care is going to be delivered. I also think that there's evidence that just in the sort of three-part system that we have of commercial insurance, Medicaid, and then Medicare slash VA, that you see decreasing profit motivation decreased cost focus versus more patient-centered focus. Granted, you know, there are other things you have to contend with, for instance, which is like, for instance, Medicaid and Medicare pay doctors less, pay hospitals less, pay pharmaceutical companies less, but then they still approve the care. And the side of the argument that I'm most concerned about is patients not getting what the doctor thinks they need. And if we have to talk about how much things cost as a separate argument, that's like an economics force in and of itself. But we can't have, regardless of the the situation, we can't have the payer dictating what happens to the patient because they're not qualified to do it. They will make the wrong decision and it will result in worse outcomes for the patient. I would certainly second that. 
And I would also say you touched on something that drives me crazy, and that's the assumption that private companies are the free market is always more efficient than the government. And when it comes to healthcare, that has proven absolutely not to be true. Every country that has a national health program, every developed country, generally it costs a lot less than it does in the United States, and they have better outcomes. In fact, our health outcomes tend to be towards the bottom, as I'm sure you know. Well, I mean, I would say our average health comes right. tend to be towards the bottom. Yes. And that means that the, the problem here in our country is not lack of access to care or lack of high-quality care or even, you know, getting care paid for. The problem is that there is this massive disparity, that we have a, a underinsured or uninsured underclass that receives poor quality health care. And then we have 10 or 20% of people that receive excellent health care. Um, and I, I mean, I would put myself as a health care consumer in that second category. My daughter has a chromosome deletion and you know, receives about $120,000 a year in medical care. And, you know, she sees six or seven different specialists, but I can, I can text to these people and ask them questions. I can call and be seen in the office the next day because they're my colleagues. I have as good of access to healthcare as anyone can get. But clearly we don't do that for everyone. If you don't have knowledge of how to navigate the system, if you don't have sufficient financial resources to be able to take a day off of work, you know, all of a sudden, if one of your kids gets sick or you get sick, then the care you receive is going to be worse. And so, I mean, that's, that's one of the more heartbreaking things about our system is that we have, we're an extremely wealthy nation that has more than enough resources to provide healthcare for everyone, but we don't. And we draw that line along socioeconomics. And then there's a, a whole nother spin to it that is even more troubling to me, which is beyond the socioeconomics, we tend to um, have much worse outcomes for people of color or any sexual minority youth, uh, LGBT individuals, um, women you know, versus men, immigrants versus citizens. Uh, and that's just heartbreaking that we're treating human life as having a different value for people that have more resources or who are not people of color. There's absolutely no reason for that. But until we have a single-payer system that has regulations in place and clear expectations in place that that won't happen, this is going to just keep happening. Unfortunately, what you say is true, and you know, hopefully we can do something about it. Before we end, would you have anything that you would like to add? Well, I, you know, I will um, relate a, a personal anecdote. So, um, over the past few months, my mother was was diagnosed with uh, an invasive type of cancer that eventually spread to her lungs and her spine. And she's in her 60s. And prior to starting on Medicare, she had a lot of financial hardship related to the health care that she received. Um, you know, many thousands of dollars that she had to pay out of pocket every year. And this is a, a you know, somebody on a on a fixed income pension. She was a retired nurse. 
Uh, and then whenever she switched over to Medicare, it was a whole different ballgame. She no longer had to worry about that. She had all of her cancer care was paid for by Medicare. Uh, and then over the past few months, she had a major, major operation that cost well over $200,000 and chemo and radiation and all these things. And it you know, would have wiped her out financially if she hadn't yet been on Medicare. And so that's probably my biggest experience with Medicare is seeing my mother transition from being on commercial insurance that she had to pay for over to Medicare and how much easier it was for her to receive care. And I would hope that everyone could have that kind of time series analysis where they could see just in somebody they love the difference between what commercial insurance will do and what Medicare will do. And we can't keep doing this. This is completely unsustainable. And the longer that we, that we wait, the longer that we allow corporations to make these decisions, the worse it will get, the more entrenched it will get. In the current election coming up, the idea of Medicare for all is a huge policy issue, probably the biggest one. And you have massive opposition to it from half the country, most of whom would massively benefit from it. So I don't know how to fix that problem other than to just have more education about the economics of how you can adequately finance healthcare. And I think that it's very clear in the 21st century that there is not a way to effectively finance something as expensive as healthcare from the private sector. It has to be transitioned to be a universal human right. And we have to band together as a society to make that decision and to pay for it. And the longer that we don't do it, the more we're going to fall behind. And then we may get to the point where we can't do it anymore. And we get relegated to being a, you know, even worse than we are now as far as health, health outcomes. And then that affects the economy. That affects politics. So this is a huge, huge issue that we have to solve now during this election cycle. I would second, third, and fourth, all that. I would also like to say I would like to wish your mother the best. And you, I really appreciate that. Thank you, Joe. You're welcome. So I wish your mother the best. And Dr. Billy Bennett, thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Joe. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening. <laughs>